There's a wonderful contemporary theologian some of you might be familiar with by the name of Fleming Rutledge. If you're not familiar with Fleming Rutledge, I'd encourage you to become familiar with her. As an undergraduate, she spent a great deal of time studying Shakespeare. And as a postgraduate, not in school, but after my graduate work, I have spent a great deal of time studying Shakespeare. It is one of my great passions, studying the tragedies of Shakespeare. This is what Fleming Rutledge had to say about a professor who had a profound impact on her in the realm of Shakespearean scholarship. The professor who taught Shakespeare when I was an undergraduate gave me a gift for which I've been grateful all my life. He taught his students that Shakespeare is vast, colossal, inexhaustible. Shakespeare, he insisted, is bigger than any of us, bigger than all of us put together. He instilled in us a respect, indeed a reverence, for Shakespeare's plays, and this evoked a corresponding humility in us. We were assigned various critics to read, but in the end, he would say, the critics are all bad, including himself. The plays were indeed the thing. Only by submitting ourselves to the text for months and years on end would we ever approach wisdom by entering the world of the plays, by giving ourselves up to their shaping power, by allowing Shakespeare to reconfigure our horizons and open our eyes to new realms of understanding. This is totally different from the way Shakespeare is taught now. Students are encouraged to think themselves as competent to interpret the text as they think best before they have allowed the text to have its way with them. Beautiful words. When reading Shakespeare, and ever much more so for us, when reading scripture, we ought to chasten our gut immediate reaction to interpret the text. We all like to do it. We want to read scripture and immediately interpret it. We need to bridle our impulse to autonomously exegete, to interpret, to sort of make sense of, and first and foremost, sit back and listen to the text. We need to place ourselves in a position of humility before the text and let the words of scripture just have their way with us. Having the faith that having let scripture slay us, that we will rise again and we will rise again stronger, better fitted to listen to the text again the next time. Now that type of reading, it takes a lot of wisdom. It is difficult. I'll tell you the more theology you read, the more difficult it becomes. The more theology you have bouncing in your head, the more difficult it becomes to let the text have its way with you instead of superimposing, oh, that's what Calvin would say here. Oh, that's what Bavinck would say. Oh, Luther would say this, Aquinas would say that, Anselm would say this. It takes wisdom to read the text that way. It takes patience, and it takes gentleness. Some might say it even takes meekness and faith to read the text that way. Our sermon text this morning comes from 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. And our goal, my goal for all of us, myself included, will be for us to sit before this feast that is the word of the Lord with gratitude and humility and let the text have its way with us. That is my goal this morning. Now, Scripture, it certainly needs no aid, needs no help. But as a pedagogical tool or sort of a teaching and preaching prop, I'll be using what I believe to be Shakespeare's greatest work, 
truly, in my opinion, the greatest work in the history of Western literature, to help draw out what Paul has for us in this remarkable passage today. And I'll be using this passage, this, this work of Shakespeare's, to elucidate, to give a mental image for us to hang on to, particularly in regards to these glorious words, that we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We'll make two points this morning then. Lear, every inch a king. And secondly, the children of God, every inch kings and queens. So first, Lear, every inch a king. Shakespeare's King Lear, it has its claws in me in a way that I cannot really describe. I'm not sure I understand it myself, so that puts me in a very, very difficult position of trying to make sense of it to each and every one of you. I don't understand why this play grips me the way that it does. But it has its hooks in my psyche. It has its hooks in the life of my mind. It tugs on me emotionally to the point where I am unable to read it without being moved to tears. And I've taught it dozens of times, and I can't stop crying. I often cannot read secondary litership, uh, scholarship on it without being moved to tears. I can't read the commentators on it. And I don't cry often. I'm not a crier. I rarely cry. As the title would suggest, King Lear is about a king. Shakespeare wrote about kings a lot. He wrote about all those different Henrys and Richard. He wrote a play called Julius Caesar. You might have heard of him. He wrote a play called Macbeth about the king of Scotland, and Hamlet, about the prince of Denmark. But Lear is titled King Lear. Macbeth is not called King Macbeth. Richard III is not called King Richard III. And Hamlet, it's got a subtitle. Hamlet, the prince of Denmark. As if Shakespeare wanted to put some distance, some spacer, a little bit of a buffer between the man Hamlet and his role as prince. But in Lear, there exists no buffer, no space spear, no spacer at all. It is King Lear. King Lear is the Shakespearean work on kingship. The true king. Dare we say the good king. A kingly example for us all. Now, if any of you had a literary background at all or just like to read in your free time, if you're familiar with the play, even in a cursory manner, you're probably thinking, this guy up here is absolutely absurd. Lear? The good king? The true king? A kingly example for us all? After all, Lear proves himself to be unwise on a handful of occasions. He is prone to violent outbursts. He is cruel and he is egotistical. He shows himself to be extraordinarily vain. After all, the entire drama, it unfolds as the aged king. He decides that he is going to divvy up his kingdom. He's going to divide his kingdom amongst his three daughters. The monstrously wicked Goneril and Regan. And the lovely, beautiful, and understated Cordelia. I love Cordelia, the character, so much that if I were to ever have a fifth child, I would try to convince my, my wife there was a girl, to name her Cordelia. Cordelia only shows up for a short time in the 
so much. Now, I don't think I'm going to have a fifth child, nor do I think my wife would go for naming the child Cordelia, but I would fight for that. I love that character just that much. So Lear, in his vanity, or maybe due to his darker purpose, maybe a secret plan, he divides up his kingdom amongst his three daughters. And the way he gives them their allotment of inheritance, how much territory they are going to get, is solely based upon how well they flatter him. Each daughter is paraded before him to sing his praises, to flatter his ego, to ruminate and proclaim his royal grandeur. And his two eldest daughters, some of the most vile characters in all of fiction, Goneril and Regan, showing that they did not truly love the king, that they did not truly love their father, they flatter him up and down. Like cheap perfume, their inauthentic words hang on the air and they choke the truth right out of the room. In regards to Goneril and Regan, one can't help but think of Psalm 78. Psalm 78, which at one point in verse 36 and 37 reads, Nevertheless, they flattered him with their mouth and they lied unto him with their tongues, for their heart was not right with him, neither were they steadfast in his covenant. So the first two daughters, they flatter the vain, aging king. But the third, Cordelia, she responds with just three words. An absolute tour de force. A lightning bolt of a statement. When it's her turn to flatter her father, in order to determine how much inheritance she will receive, she says, nothing, my lord. Nothing, my lord. Lear is shocked. He parrots back her answer as if to say, wait, wait, I couldn't have possibly heard that correct. Nothing? Cordelia, stoic. She repeats her one word earthquake. Nothing. Cordelia's lack of praise, it throws Lear into a fit of rage. Nothing begets nothing. Speak again. You're not going to give me anything? Then I will give you nothing. If there's nothing you have to say for me, no flattery you have for me, no part of my kingdom will you have. The incensed Lear doesn't stop there. He violently screams and disowns his own daughter. His good and noble assistant, Ken Kent, tries to calm him down. He jumps between King Lear and Cordelia, and he pleads with King Lear, See better. See better. Kent repeats those words a lot in the play. See better. To which Lear responds, stand not between the dragon and his wrath. Having pushed Kent aside, he then calls down curses upon the womb of Cordelia. If you're going to treat me this way, I hope you never have a child. Curses her womb. So we see Lear is vain. He's unwise. He's prone to anger and outburst. He sweeps aside friends. And throughout the play, he will descend into utter madness eventually being stripped of all of his possessions, all his men, all his regal splendor, we will find him wandering naked on the heath in the driving storm. At the beginning of the play, he looks every part the king. He's distinguished, exercising his absolute power. He's in charge of others. He's robed in kingly garb. He appears from the outside to be every inch a king. But those beautiful words, every inch a king, they're not spoken by Lear until very, very late in the play. 
When the now blind Gloucester, Gloucester has had his eyes grotesquely gorged out of his skull by Goneril and Regan and stomped on. When Gloucester, now blind, unable to see, he hears Lear's voice from a distance. And Lear, at this point, he's been reduced to nothing. He's been wandering an outcast in his own land. He's descended into madness, at least for a time. He's no longer decked out in his kingly robes. He's no longer sparkling with jewels. But at this point, he has clothed himself from the flowers of the ground. He's covered his nakedness with flowers. His crown is gone, and he now wears the hat of his loyal court jester. We find King Lear literally wearing a dunce cap. Gloucester, who once again is blind, and in the beautiful words of Shakespeare, can only see feelingly. He sees feelingly. He hears Lear's voice, and he says, Is it not the king? Is that not the king? Lear, in the lowly position we just described, stripped of all status, he responds, I, every inch a king. I, every inch a king. With that said, I want to leave Lear hovering in the background. We're going to return to the king. But let's for a moment permit him to just linger in the background, float around us, and move on to our second point. The children of God, every inch kings and queens. Our text this morning, as we stated, is 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18. And prior to these closing two verses in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul has been talking about Moses. And when Moses is mentioned in the New Testament, it's a very safe bet, a nice theological or uh, exegetical reading tip right here. Anytime you hear Moses mentioned in the New Testament, you can be assured that some discussion of the law is going on. Hear Moses' name in the New Testament. Somebody's been talking about what place does the law have now. And then we get to verse 17 of our text, which reads, Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, if you just took that text out of context, the Lord is the Spirit, you would be prone to interpret that text as, oh, this is a Trinitarian manifestation here. The Lord is the same Holy Spirit. That is 100% not what Paul is saying here. He is not saying that the Lord is the Holy Spirit. The Lord is the Holy Spirit, but that's not what he's saying here. This verse is not meant to say that. Paul's been talking about the law, about our moral obligations, those rules and regulations that seem to hang over us many times, making life difficult, filling us with anxiety and dread. Maybe even the law fills you with despair. But here he tells us the Lord is the Spirit. That is to say, Jesus himself is the Spirit of the law. The Spirit is that which animates. The Spirit is that which breathes life into man. And Paul is telling us that if Christ doesn't breathe life into the law, then the law will not be life-giving. If the law is not animated by Christ, then the law will be something that will produce dread and anxiety and despair for each and every one of us. The law is only seen as beautiful, as lovely, as a wellspring of life once it has been enlivened by Christ, who is the spirit of the law. Apart from that, the law is nothing but a curse, a dark cloud that hangs over us, that blocks out the rays of sunshine that would be this life of eating and drinking and being merry. For after all, there is no fixed moral order. 
do whatever you want, you're going to die, and nothing matters. David, through the Spirit, foreshadows this proper understanding of the law. David, through the Spirit, understood that the law, as beautified by Jesus Christ, is something that will rejoice your heart. Listen to what David says about the law, how he views the law. From our Old Testament reading today, Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving my soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. They rejoice my heart. The commandments of the Lord is pure. They enlighten my eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true, and they're righteous altogether. You see, David understands the law breathed into by Christ is something that will revive your soul, will rejoice your heart. The law will enlighten your eyes. You remember, in the midst of Lear's early rage, brought about, precipitated by Cordelia's terse, nothing. The good Kent pleaded with him to see better. See better. But in that moment, Lear couldn't. Unlike David, his eyes were not enlightened. And so that simple nothing, it sent him spiraling into nothing. So Christ, he's the spirit that animates the law. And the risen and ascended Lord is the one that sends his spirit to animate and enliven us. To turn us into creatures who can see better. Creatures who are attentive and fixated to the melodic harmony of the law. That's the way Augustine describes the law in his confessions. Right? The law, he says, is a psaltery of ten strings. It's a musical instrument. It's beautiful. It's a harmony, harmonious. The spirit is transitioning us into creatures who are creatures of love. Creatures who are being refined by the law. When you realize that this is what the law is, the law is sort of like a chisel that is knocking the gunk and the fat and the junk off of your body and transitioning into, into a much more beautiful statue than you currently are. The law is something that is at this moment transfiguring us into kings and queens. But that process, that chiseling, that viewing the law in that way, that is a process of purgation. It's a process of elimination. It's a process of derobing the vestments of our own strength. It's a process of stripping ourselves of all of those things, many of those things, that might give us power in the world. And instead, garbing ourselves, clothing ourselves in the righteousness of Christ. Where there's just the law and no grace, where there's no Christ breathing life into the law, we have nothing but the realm of sin, nothing but privation, nothing but the lack of the good, and nothing begets nothing. It leads to nothing, to no hope, to no future, to no life eternal, to no fellowship with God. It leads to nothing. Verse 18 of our text reads, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's a beautiful image, right? That we are moving from one degree of glory to another. 
Now, we are certainly glorified creatures, glorified above all else in the created order, as God has pressed his very image into us. He has breathed his life into us, making us in his triune image. But Paul tells us that we're moving from that degree of glory to another degree of glory, to a greater degree of glory. And I'd like to ask us this morning, what does that journey look like? What does the journey from glory to glory look like? Well, we need look no further than the example of the one who breathed life into the law, who beautified the law with his life of perfect, personal, exact, and entire obedience. We need to ask ourselves, well, what did his journey look like? The great second century Greek bishop Irenaeus, he said of Christ, of that journey, that he came down to where we are, to lift us up to where he is. His journey from glory to glory involved a descent, a precipitous drop, a plunging into the ash heap that is the human condition. The King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the one who garbed in royal splendor, sharing in the perichoritic, mutually indwelling love that is the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he was made low in his incarnation. He was made low in his incarnation. He descended from his seat of authority into the clothing of our flesh. He was made low in his suffering, and he exchanged the eternal crown of glory for a crown of thorns. One might even say he exchanged his eternal crown of glory for a dunce cap, something that made him look like a fool to the rest of the world. If Christ's journey was a journey into the valley, what do you think our pilgrimage should look like? We talk about union with Christ a lot. At least I know Mr. Spander does, because Paul does, so I hope he does. It's Paul's fundamental theme in the New Testament. There is not a single thing that Paul talks about more in the New Testament than our union with Christ. And if we are united with Christ, we are united to Christ not just in his death, which is your death, and his resurrection, which is your resurrection. That is all fair and well and true. But if we're united to Christ, we're united to Christ throughout the entire course of his obedient life through which he purchased your liberation. And that unity requires that our lives take the same cruciform pattern. Psalm 113 tells us that he raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with the princes and the princesses of his people. Like Lear, to be made true kings and queens, we must be made low. And that involves throwing off the clothing by which this world might view you as great. In the Divine Comedy, the great Italian poet Dante, he understood that any true ascent, any climbing the ladder to paradiso, to paradise, to face-to-face communion with God, any true ascent always involves a descent first. Right? The Italian poet's journey starts in the inferno. It starts in hell. And having with his guide Virgil climbed out of the pits of hell, out of the inferno, and into the second section of the poem, and the second section of his journey, the second section of his pilgrimage, 
he finally reaches the shores of Mount Purgatorium. So here's Dante, right? He finds himself in this midlife crisis in the midst of a dark wood, and he descends with Virgil into the pits of hell, into the inferno. He's climbed out of hell, learned many things, and now he gets to the second section, Purgatorio. And he finds himself on the shores of Purgatorio. And when he arrives on the shores of Purgatorio, an angel approaches him. And the angel goes up to Dante and he carves onto his forehead seven P's. P, 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 P. Right across his forehead. The P's are short for the Latin word pacare. Pacare is the Latin word for sin. An angel of the Lord carves the seven deadly sins onto Dante's forehead. Lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, pride. All of which must be purged from him in order for him to enter paradisio. Paradise, the presence of God. You don't go before God with the seven deadly sins clinging all over your body. It just doesn't work that way. Those things have to be purged from you. That section of purgatorio, I have to imagine, is what C.S. Lewis had in mind when he was writing in The Great Divorce. You guys remember that section in The Great Divorce where there's the man who wants to go up to the mountains or go up to heaven, and he's got that little lizard attached to his shoulder, whispering and in his ear, the lizard of lust. And he goes and he wants to go up to the mountain, and the angel stops him, and he says, all right, you want to go up there? I just got to get rid of that first. And he's like, yes, I like this. He's like, no, we got to purge it off if you want to get up there. And he doesn't want to, but the angel eventually convinces him, right? And it's a painful process, but he purges it off. All of those things have to be purged off of Dante if he wants to enter the presence of God. Well, we don't believe in purgatory, right? Scripture doesn't teach that there is such a place. But we have plenty of uh, things to learn here from this great Italian poet, especially in light of our passage that says that we are being transformed from glory to glory. These seven deadly sins, our lust and our pride, our wrath and our greed, our gluttony, our slothfulness, these are our vestments, many times, of worldly stature, of our worldly success. Those vices are oftentimes what, look, what winning looks like to the world. To the world who cannot see better. Yeah, after all, Lear, right, he was proud. He was wrathful. He was envious at the beginning of the play. And in that moment, he looked to the world every inch a king. But it took a radical descent for him to learn humility, for him to learn peace, for him to learn tranquility, grace, and love. And it was only when he was at his very lowest, after his crown was exchanged for a jester's hat, that he was truly every inch a king. It was only at that present hour when he was hungry and thirsty, when he was poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. It was only being brought low that when reviled, he could bless. When persecuted, he could endure. When slandered, he could entreat. He had become like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things by worldly standards. And it was only then that he was every inch a king. Lear's vices, his sins, they sent his life spiraling out of control and set the wheels in motion for unthinkable tragedies. Having been brought low, he could finally see better, as the good Kent had pleaded with him, see better. He's brought low and he can finally see better. 
But what he now saw, it was too much for any mere man to bear. The play ends with Lear carrying the dead body of his beloved daughter, Cordelia, onto the stage as he beats his chest and howls like a caged animal. She's gone, gone forever. I know when one is dead and when one lives, she's dead as the earth. In this bleakest darkness, there was the smallest sliver of light. Lear had learned of grace, and in his ocean of sadness, he has this small, tiny thimble of hope as he cradles his dead daughter across his legs. Lear dies in this wild flurry, a vertical-inducing sort of tilt-a-whirl of moving from one degree of despair to absolute ecstasy. As the lifeless body of Cordelia is draped across him, these are the final words from King Lear. Why should a dog, a horse, a rat have life and thou no breath at all? Thou'lt come no more. Never, 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 never. Pray you, undo this button. Thank you, sir. Do you see this? Look on her. Look at her lips. Look there. Look there. Cordelia is dead. Lear knows it. Everyone knows it. And yet right before she dies, or Lear dies, I should say, he calls for somebody to unbutton her shirt. He thinks she's breathing. Look there. Her lips are moving. They're not moving. But Lear, having been brought low, he has this glimmer of resurrection hope. Dare one say he even has faith. And that hope and that faith in a higher power the throwing off the ephemeral and the fleeting for the eternal, that makes him every inch a king. Maybe not in the eyes of the world, but that makes him every inch a king. You and I, beloved, we are to be made low, which is foolishness to the world. I mean, after all, what kind of a sadist do you have to be to intentionally take on a cruciform life? What kind of a lunatic intentionally bears a cross? Well, our text teaches us that Christ has elucidated the law. And we can behold the glory of the Lord looking at the law through the lens of Christ. And beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed inch by inch into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Those in Christ must undergo a vertical plunge, a leer-like plunge into what can only look like madness to the world. We must forego the trappings of worldly glory and kingship if we want to be transformed into true kings and queens. For no servant is greater than his master. And if the master was made low and you are united to him, so should we be too. One is never closer to the gates of heaven than when one has entered the depths of the valley of the shadow of death. Because that's the path that King Jesus walked. Unlike Lear, he was and always was every inch a king. But he freely abdicated his royalty so that we through his poverty might be made rich. And on Easter morning, 
You can almost hear the guards in horror, delight, sort of a tilt-a-whirl, moving back and forth between ecstasy and horror, saying, Look there! Look there! Look there! While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He's not here, but has risen. He's risen indeed, the risen king, and you and I are united to him. And by pure, unimaginable grace are being transformed at this second from one degree of glory to another. And one day, your heavenly father will ask of each and every one of you, is that my beloved child? To which Christ will answer for you, I, every inch of King. Amen.